Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. I'm James Pringle. I'm a VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a B2B investor at Episode 1 Ventures. Today's episode is with Roger Wade, chairman at BoxFund VC. BoxFund specialises in UK early stage SEIS and EIS investments. Their main area of focus is ESG and B Corp businesses. Roger co-founded BoxFund after successfully exiting the world's number one pop-up mall brand, Box Park, which you've likely either visited or seen on TV. In this episode, we discuss Roger's career, the growth of Box Park leading up to selling the business, and Roger's ambitions to change UK PLC into a nation of entrepreneurs that have a positive impact. This is a great episode. Let's get started. Hi, Roger. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. It's great to have you on. Maybe we could start with a quick introduction to you and Box Park and what you're doing now with Box Fund. Hi, James and Hector. Thanks for having me on the show. Straight after university, I got the sack in my first three jobs. So I started my first business, Box Fresh. I built that business up over a 20-year period. I sold it to Pentland Brands, who I guess are renowned for owning Reebok and brands like Lacoste and Kickers, to name a few, and also owning JD Sports. I then set up my own brand consultancy, Brands Incorporated. Then I set up Box Park, got about that in 2010, and uh, I built the world's first pop-up mall, and I built that business up to one of Britain's fastest growing companies, and then I exited it to Lloyd's Development Capital and I stepped down as CEO last May and I took six months off and I've recently decided to set up my own venture capital fund called Box Fund and we're a fund started by entrepreneurs, funded by entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs and we invest in ESG, UK-based ESG startups. So... Roger, it's great to have you on the show and yeah, looking forward to hearing all about your, your journey and you know, what's to come. But you mentioned something interesting that we hear a lot from entrepreneurs, which is that they are unemployable. Can we dig into that? I mean, why do you think of yourself as unemployable? You know, well, I like to think, I mean, after I came out of university, I was unemployable. I like to think I'm after 35 years of working in a company, maybe I'm employable now. But I, I, when, when I was young, I was really inquisitive and when I went into advertising, you know, you couldn't, I initially went in as a media buyer and, you know, every time they looked at me at my desk, I'd probably be in the creative department or somewhere else. I, I really needed to understand how everything worked before I could just do one bit of it. And as a result of that, I found it, well, people found it difficult to employ me. So I got a sack in my first three jobs. But I think, I think it's different reasons for different people i think that in my case i had a really inquisitive nature and i think you've got to find something that you really love and if somebody sits you down and go look i want you to just buy tv spots all day long and you're not really interested in it i think you're going to get the sack and that's what happened no i think that makes good sense and i think like there's entrepreneurs are not given enough credit for their creativity and i think you know creative minds and inquisitive and curious minds are well suited to starting something new because their, their creative nature means they can see things perhaps that others don't and opportunities are included in that. And if you don't mind me saying, let's not sort of big up entrepreneurs as though we're some master race or species. 
actually, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have got major insecurities and we're really driven on by the need to be successful. So in my, in my case, you know, I was a failed doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. Then I realized I didn't really want a life of service. Uh, I just did any old degree at university, did a degree in environmental studies, but didn't really get on with it. And I started running clubs from an early age. And I, that's when I had my first taste of being an entrepreneur. But for me, actually, it was when I became an entrepreneur was the first time I was actually good at doing something. So, you know, if I look at some of the, the entrepreneurs that I really admire, I think all of, a lot of them have deep rooted insecurities. So we take someone like Steve Jobs. He was adopted at a young age. Elon Musk bullied at school. Richard Branson, criminal record, and probably not the most richest kid at a very expensive public school. So need to prove. Alan Sugar, not exactly mm. the tallest man in the room, you know. Well, <laughs> I think we've all got some sort of form of insecurity and, and that sort of drives you on. And then you start getting good at business. And as a result of that, your ego gets boosted. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that when they first start out, it's from a deep-rooted insecurity and, and almost it's the first time that they've been good at something. I mean, what do they... Peter Crouch once famously said, what would you have been if you weren't a football footballer? And he said, a virgin. I think that's the same as the entrepreneurs. <laughs> what, would I, what would you have been if you weren't an entrepreneur? Definitely a virgin. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I think, this is, I think this is a really interesting conversation. And the insecurity thing, I think, is very, very true in, in many cases. I think it comes down to who, who are you doing it for? Are you an entrepreneur for yourself? to prove something to yourself and because you enjoy the product, the, the project and, you know, growing something or are you doing it for other people? And, and I do, I don't know the answer to that, but a, a lot of people, and I, I don't know whether it is a majority, I think are doing it for other people and they are doing it for that glory because entrepreneurs are glorified. And I don't know why they're glorified, probably for the money, but yeah, I think you've got to be, well, no, you don't necessarily have to be, but I think it's good if you are doing whatever you're doing in life for yourself. Yeah, rather than for other people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as I said, I think we've got to be careful that we don't over-romanticize it and believe that a lot of entrepreneurs were initially driven by some sort of fantastic sort of calling to create a better world or, you know, I, I think a lot of them, there's just a really deep-rooted insecurity, you know, just something very, and, mm -hmm. and I think, Entrepreneurs have to ask themselves three fundamental questions, which I think for your listeners here is an important point, which is why are you in business? And I only think there's maybe three, possibly now four reasons to be in business. And that the first reason is a really bad reason. It's for your ego. So I would look at the example of Elon Musk buying Twitter or X or whatever it's called now as a really bad example of some, an entrepreneur whose ego has gone crazy. You know, so I don't think that's a very good financially driven decision. I think that's purely an egotistical driven decision. So you've got to be careful for that. And then the next two forms of three forms of entrepreneurs is, I think the purest forms. you set up a business to sell a business, but actually what's really interesting in that, and, and they're the guys you want to buy, but sometimes you don't really think about the outcome if you sell a business, because when you sell a business, it creates a problem because you suddenly get 
you know, or you might be in a fortunate enough position to make a lot of money. Well, hold on. You know, you're not going to spend all that money. You've suddenly got a business of actually trying to take care of that money. And then, then you come back almost to the, the place that you started, which is, well, I need it, need it to create income. So I'd, I'd, I'd say to some entrepreneurs, if you want to create income, you haven't got, you know, a massive requirement for a load of money, then maybe just keep the business and hand it on to your family, you know, or hand it on to the management team. So I think that's the next reason to have a business. And I'm increasingly understanding that, that from a tax perspective and from a return on your money, that aspects may be a really good reason to be in business. Set up a business for your employees or fellow directors to then take over the business or for your kids to take over business. And then you create income coming in because eventually that's the same outcome as getting a lump sum of money and then you have to invest it and you get income. But maybe it's a much more tax efficient. And then finally, I think the final way of, the final reason to have a business is because you want to really do good, you know? And I think the example of the, the owner of Patagonia recently gave his business or the proceeds of the business to environmental causes. I think that's a fantastic example, but you could argue that's what Warren Buffett's done. That's what Bill Gates have done. You know, both of them are giving 95% of their wealth away. I don't understand people are so upset with them. You know, I don't see many other giving. Why? Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's I think it's true. And I think, you know, if you if you are doing your business for the good of other people or for the good of the world, that is fantastic. I just think you have to be careful about where you get your validation. You know, are are you just trying to inflate your ego and that's why you're building your business? But I think, yeah, you know, we've covered that. I think it's a really interesting discussion. But where where did the idea for Box Park come from in your case? I mean, it's another really interesting point because I think one of the problems that I've got with a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays is there's not much creative thinking that they seem to be obsessed with copying everyone else and i'm a great believer in trusting your emotional intelligence so to understand how we created box part you'd have to understand my creative journey or my entrepreneurial journey as, as steve jobs said sort of connecting up the dots of your life so it really started with when i was at box fresh and I suddenly had a real belief that, you know, my personal taste, people liked. So, cause I was making millions of garments a year and there was no computer says that's a nice garment. I had to judge, I had to use my own judgment. I had to trust my own emotional intelligence. So that was a huge changing point for me. It was suddenly I lived by a mantra with Box Fresh that I've lived most of my life, which was given to me by a guy called Ted De Cruz, who was an incredible brand consultant who I met at a very young age. And he said to me, if you're not special to your customer, you won't exist. Let me say that once again. If you're not special to your customer, you won't exist. Really think about how profound those words are, being special to somebody. And in order to be special to your customer, you've got to tap into their emotional intelligence. You've got to tap into your emotional intelligence. You've got to make sure that you're doing something that maybe hasn't been done before. So when I had Box Fresh, what I realized was that there was the death of independent brands and people were talking about the internet, everyone buying from Amazon. And I just never buyed into that. I always believed that people want to feel special and your clothing made you feel special. So 
when everyone else was zigging, I was zagging. When everyone was going into the internet, I was going, no, I believe in physical retail. I believe that people want to touch and feel that product. They want to make sure that garment fits them. So I wasn't following the macro trends. I was following my own personal taste. And then with Box Park, I just had a voila moment where I just suddenly went in the middle of the night. Yeah, I'm going to do this, which was I'm going to create a whole high street of independence. And I'm going to build it from shipping containers because I had a sort of love of shipping container architecture. I really built a shipping container store. And that was the beginning of Box Park. And then that business then evolved away from street wear into street food and then eventually moved into events and, and entertainment and, and selling a lot of drinks, I guess. So, you know, but it was connecting up the dots of my life and also daring to be di different. And I'd encourage entrepreneurs to do that. Yeah, because there are conflicting views on this in the startup world. And, and some, you know, you hear people talking about or suggesting the founders shouldn't build what they think people want. They should go out and talk to customers and learn what they want. But then you have Steve Jobs, who I think he said something like, people don't know what they want until they're shown it. And so you, you hear, you know, people are in a good position to advise, giving very different advice. And so how, how do you work out? what to build and whether it's going to land. Did you do any testing with Bok Bo Park or was it just like, let's, let's go zero to a hundred and see if it lands? I'm in the Steve Jobs camp, which is no, I, I really trust my emotional intelligence. And I don't think we talk about this. I think we want to quantify things. I think we need to have validation, but that's not how great things happen in life. That's not how Edison invented the light bulb. You know, it's, he didn't. And somebody that showed him an eyeball, you know, that's not how the Wright brothers invented a plane, maybe in their case, maybe, but you've got to trust your emotional intelligence. And so my message to all the listeners out there is trust it. You know, there isn't a, there isn't computer says, buy this t-shirt when you're out shopping, you trust your emotional intelligence. You go, I like that t-shirt. It fits really well. But why can't you apply that when you're creating a t-shirt? I like that t-shirt. Why don't we do this? And I'm always really just trusting myself. And that, that was probably one of my biggest assets was that I just had total belief in my judgment. You know, some might call that arrogance. Look, I don't really care. You've got to be arrogant in order to have us be a successful entrepreneur, because you've got to be able to, to believe what you're doing is right when everyone else is saying to you, it's not. You've got to believe to change the status quo when everyone wants to keep it the same. So, yeah. So what my message to guys out there, if you've got innate talent and you, you can really, you feel what the customer want, go for it. You know, so yeah, I'm a great advocate. I mean, I, I, in my companies, I always used to promote the creatives and, you know, to be frank with you, bean counters were too early. It's the, the creators that I love to celebrate because they dare to be different. And then, Roger, you, I mean, a lot of people will have experienced Box Park, but you also had this amazing knack of getting Box Park on TV, where every time there was a goal scored by England or any big event, they used to pan to Box Park. What, how did you get that exposure? Was that an official partnership or just something that happened and... How impactful was that on the growth of the business? I mean, it was impactful, but it was also luck, James. But sometimes you make your own luck. So in that particular example, it was on the day that the luck happened, which was, I think, was the first World Cup game. And we were 
previously hosting Crystal Palace fan part. So there was a lot, lot of Crystal Palace fans that came down to the England game. And one of them just videoed a celebration when I think England scored against Colombia or something like that. The last minute, you know, they needed the win. And that video went viral. And we just rolled with it. And suddenly this sort of celebration of throwing beers in the air became viral. Viral. We became the home of beer throwing. But, you know, you, you create your own luck. You know, so rather than us being uptight about people throwing beer in our venues, we, we embraced it. We loved it. We'd sell them two beers at a time. We'd sell them one beer they can throw in the air, one beer they can drink. Or usually two beers, one beer to throw in their friends, one beer they could drink. And they would give them ponchos to make sure they were dry. And, and then we'd start doing things like putting, you know, GoPros in each corner and then giving all of the footage for free worldwide so everyone could see it. And, you know, in the next minute we had cameras from every international news agency. You know, I think during that period, I think we had something like 10 billion views. Of Box Park, it went viral. We were live in 10 countries or something at one stage. So, yeah, it's stuff. But is that, a, is that a great example of a sort of entrepreneurial spirit where, you know, maybe an established organization might say, oh, we don't really want people throwing beer in the air. Whereas the entrepreneurial rebellious nature of your own leadership and attitude and, and business was like, let's embrace this thing because it's different and it's exciting and it's, yeah. And, and, you know, that's not new. Richard Branson's done that virtually his whole, he's been a one word sort of walking PR machine and he's always embraced these opportunities. And he's, you know, when he's had a difficult moment, let's take the, the BA situa situation when they were you know, actively trying to disrupt their business. He sort of turned that into a David and Goliath sort of PR story. So but you've got to have somebody at the top that can see beyond that moment and go, look, we this is great. Let's really run with it. This is absolutely fantastic. But we, we've had this, I've had this with other businesses that I run. I remember, remember with Box Fresh, we had a stylist come to see us and he said, I've got this film called Kid Out Virgin. I need some clothing. And we just sort of went, oh yeah, go on, just go ahead. And the next minute we were turning up at a premiere at Leicester Square and, you know, Box Fresh was all over that film. And that film went, was a sort of almost a, a cult youth, British youth film, you know, so you just got to know when those moments happen, you just got to run with it. So, you know, I'm always being quite a maverick and, and I love that. I love doing things that are maybe against the norm. You know, I love sort of, you know, somebody says, jump, I go, why? You know, I don't go, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a great message and I'm going to sound really boring now moving from, I'm um, like, like beer throwing and, and movie making to sort of the business behind Box Park, but. I mean, what, what did it feel like? Did it feel like you were building a property portfolio? Or did it feel like you were building a, a community or a business? Or what, how did it feel? And what was the kind of the journey there? And fundamentally, you're building a business. And, and what you've got to do is you've got to be careful not to really try to pinpoint what your business is. You've got to, what I would say is take the route of least resistance. So when we, we started off as a property business, we started off as an effectively built a pop-up mall. No one said you could build a pop-up mall, but we just did the maths. We said, like, it's going to cost X amount. We're going to get this amount of rent and we're going to make this amount. So it justifies us being on this site for only at that time, five years, but we're still on that site 12, you know, 12 years later. 
at Box Park Shoreditch. So we start off in property, but then the property really wasn't making much money. We were pretty much break-even business in the first five years, but it wasn't the street wear that was taking off. It was the street food. So then we went into the food. We really focused on the food element of things. And then the next minute, council said, look, we're going to shut down your licensees unless you take it over, have one single license. And we, we reluctantly did that. And then the rest is history. We suddenly really start to monetize our traffic. So I think the lesson, I think the important lesson for people to, that listening out there is we try to make retail and hospitality complex. It's, it's actually only three things. It's content, traffic, and conversion, profitable sales. In our case with Box Pearl, our content was our food, our drink, and our events. And our traffic was creating people to those events. You know, we had to have fantastic food. We had to have fantastic events good drinks, and we had to track people there. But then how are we going to monetize that? So when we were monetizing it, and when we went into drink, we started monetizing the traffic that we developed. And that's when we never looked back. When did you realize that it was actually a model that could scale? And did you ever do any franchises or was it always owned and operated by by the business. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not a great believer in franchises. You've got to remember, I already had 15 years of, of running Box Fresh before that and about five years of running Brands Inc. And, you know, setting up licensing deals and advising brands like Superdry and Universal Music. And, you know, franchises, they all sound great, but, you know, you need control. I think Richard Branson once said that you can't ever compromise your product, your brand, I think you want to say, but let's say product, your content. So you can't really, with franchising, I think there's too much compromising that happens. Yes, clearly there's successful franchises, but for every one successful franchisee, I'll name you 10 unsuccessful ones. So we considered all of that, but I think the big difference with us is every time we had a problem, we looked at it as an opportunity to create a new business idea. And that's the way we look at business problems now if we're having a problem other people had a problem and if we could solve it and other people couldn't that was a business opportunity and that's what we did with box park you know we just constantly we, when we had problems we embraced them and we weren't frightened of evolving we weren't frightened of change and too many entrepreneurs are frightened of change you know or they want the focus group to tell them the future and you're right steve jobs did say that until you get a focus group that knows the future then they're no good to me well, it's the same with us. You know, we just weren't trying to change. We embrace change. You know, we don't need the data to justify it. We just trusted ourselves. It might not sound replicable, replicable. That's how I would. But you know what? That's the truth. The truth is we had an innate trust of our emotions and our feelings and a belief in ourselves. And we've never not heard that. And that was built over a course of a 35-year entrepreneurial career. Yeah, and Roger, why, why is so, so Box Fresh and then Box Park? Why why was it Box Fresh? Because Box Park makes a lot of sense, but why Box Fresh? Box Fresh came before Box Park. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, you know the term Box Fresh came about. It was talking about Box Fresh trainers in the Bronx, mm. and effectively streetwear was about dressing for the trainers up. So we saw this word. Look at you, your Box Fresh trainers. You know, we saw an article about it. In, I think ideal. Face magazine, I didn't see it. Actually, my designers did, Sue and Olaf. 
And they came up with a name and it was just right. And Box Fresh said everything that we were doing, we're making Box Fresh clothing. It was brand new out of the box. So it was great. And then I wanted to create a whole retail development out of container boxes and I wanted it to be an urban park. So Box Park made sense. And then I wanted to create a VC fund. Well, Box Park and Box Fresh are paying for it. So Box Fund and Box Funding you. So there's no great story there. This just seemed logical to me. With uh, both these businesses, did you what's your view on fundraising? Did you fundraise for either? And if so, why or why not? In fundraising, so I was lucky enough with Box Fresh, I built that up virtually with some money from my parents and virtually their life savings. And I built that up over a 15 year period and, and, and sold it for a decent amount of money. So I had, I guess I was sort of independently wealthy after selling that. And I took about half my savings and invested it into Box Park. And I was lucky enough to bring in a minority investor into Charles Dunster of car phone warehouse fame. And he owned, he invested 10% in the business. And between me and Charles, we funded the business out of our own money. We grew that business then over the next 10 years out of our own cash flow and built that business up to three sites. And so, as I said, a 20 million turnover business, making about 5 million EBITDA and we exited it to LDC and, and if, and I say 50 million evaluation. And now we're using some of the proceeds of that to fund box funds. So yeah, we fundraising, we prefer to use our own money and then we bring in some external investors when we need to, but yeah. you know, we always put our own money in things. Yeah. It's good. It's good to know. And I think, I mean, a lot of our listeners will be interested in your view on when to sell a company, as you say, I mean, it was a super successful company, very profitable. You could have kept it. When do you think to sell a company and what do you, when do you think a good time to sell a company is? How do you, James? When do you? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Thank you for flipping it. <laughs> um, I think the. I mean, the answer has got to be, there are a few things that can cause you to, to want to sell a business, right? Either you think the growth is going to slow down and so you'll get a better price now than you would later, or you're bored and, and want to move on to another challenge. I mean, they're the, or, or you want a lump sum of cash rather than the cash streams that come from dividends or salaries. So there are different, different reasons, but um, I think any of those are, are valid or any combination of those are valid. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think we've had a few guests on here who've sold businesses. And one sort of quote that sticks out is that, you know, really good businesses are bought, not sold. So sometimes you're not necessarily, you know, planning to sell, but then the right offer comes along. And if you're in that position, then often that is the right time to sell because the offer is so good that it kind of makes sense. And then the, the flip side is sort of the one that, other one that Hector mentioned, which is if your own energy runs out, then if you feel like you've come to the end of that chapter as an entrepreneur with that business, then yeah, it's not going to get any better. I don't think so. Um, they'll probably sell then. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, somebody that started businesses and now sold two businesses and probably advised about another dozen companies and buying and selling their brands. I'd say the worst reason to sell a business, sorry. Hector, I've got to so disagree with you. Don't sell. You don't, no buyer wants to buy a business because he's suddenly realizing that the business is not going to be as profitable. That's the worst time to sell a business. The time that you want to sell a business is to sell a business on the way up. 
that's winning. So that your next buyer has got skin in the game. And also because of the reputational risk as well. So I, I agree with what James said there. I think you've got to, it's often led by the buyer, but also if you're a seller, always sell your business on the way up. And I think this is one of the worrying things I think I hear with sort of young entrepreneurs. It's this sort of, you know, and I'm going to be really frank and I want you to listen to this. It's this sort of, Firstly, it's this idea that, you know what, I'm young, you know, I've got great ideas and no one can teach me what to do. And I'm going to teach these old guys what to do. Well, you know what, quack, quack, whoops, you know, you're going to fail because business is about experience. It's knowing when the blows are going to land and how you're going to deal with them. So don't, don't be arrogant in business. Don't be thinking that you're smarter than the next person. And certainly when it comes to selling your brand, sell it on the way up. Don't sell it on the way down. Don't think that people can't see that. And don't, you know, and this whole fake it until you make it thing. God, what bullshit is that? Whoever, whoever started this with the Adam Newmans of this world and the Elizabeth Holmes of this world, trust me, those days are over. None of us are investors are interested. We don't want fast growing businesses that never make profit. We want good, solid businesses. We want to invest in people we can trust and believe in that listen. We don't want fly by night people that think they know all the answers or give us all the bullshit. Just, we don't, we don't want that. It's just problems with business is you use your ears. Be humble. Listen to people that have been there before. Surround yourself with NEDs that have done it before. And don't buy into the bullshit. Don't go into business because it, you want to just say you're an entrepreneur, you know, because it makes great podcasts or things like that. Go into business and understand your reasons for going into business. But be careful of those traps because... Those days are over. Let me tell you. Just anecdotally, Roger, I think we've had a couple of other guests that really share what you've just said, which is I remember Sitar from Connect a couple of years ago talked about the coachability of founders being a really important criteria that they look at. And they really favor the coachable founder versus the, you know, over the top hero figure that sort of ignores every bit of advice because they, they found that a real problem. And then the second bit is Katie from Jam Jar, who was also on the podcast a couple of years ago, talked about that there was a founder they had who was slightly misleading in the due diligence process. And they kind of overlooked it, I think. Uh, she, she said this on the podcast, so it's sort of well circulated internally at their fund. And they sort of overlooked it and, and they really regret it because they then never trusted that founder and, and the, the sort of misleading carried on post-investment. They just had a terrible experience with that in their portfolio. And so I think what you've highlighted there is, you know, coachability and trust and authenticity and, you know, working through challenges with your investors and advisors is a much better approach than this kind of souped up nonsense. You've absolutely hit it on the nail. And and I'm going to be frank with you. We are in a post SVB world, you know, Silicon Valley bank world. Okay. And when it was this continual Ponzi scheme of 
one VC selling to a next VC, selling to a PE at ridiculous valuations, often driven by growth projections and no real sight of profitability. Trust me, those days are over. What yeah. the current environment we've got is you've got lots and lots of businesses running out of money, VCs and PEs not putting further funding rounds in because they can't raise the secondary finance. So the environment that we're in at the moment is investors are looking for businesses with sensible valuations, with teams that listen, but are looking for profitability. At Box Fund, we say we don't believe in unicorns, right? They're mystical creatures, all right? And if they exist, trust me, the big Silicon Valley VC companies like your Sequoia and your Balderton and your Index will snap them up and give them the ridiculous valuations that they want. So we believe in zebras. They're black and white businesses. They're businesses that not only want to be profitable, but they also want to create a better society. And that's what I encourage your listeners to think about. There has been a sea change. No longer is it about chasing growth at all costs. It is very much now orientated about investing in people with, with trustworthy backgrounds, reliable people with good ideas. Yeah. They're the entrepreneurs that we're looking for. You know, we're not looking anymore. The, the whole entrepreneurial market has been tarnished by your Elizabeth Holmes and your, your Adam Newmans of this world. We're now looking for good, solid entrepreneurs that have got good, solid businesses that want to be profitable and are willing to put in the time and graph. Yeah. And also, at the same time as that, let's add this. Try and create a better world, not just try and chase the green, the money, but try at the same time and have values. You know, the values that we lack as a society when it comes to our government leaders, you know, let's have a new generation of entrepreneurs that stand for better ESG values, stand for integrity, stand for hard work. And understand it's not a get-rich-quick-kit scheme. That it is, if you choose to be an entrepreneur, it's a difficult route to choose, but you're following your dream. And they're the entrepreneurs that we want to support at Box Fund, and we will treat them fairly. You know, we'll treat them with transparency, and we won't look to take advantage of entrepreneurs that many other DCs and private equity companies do where the deal is great for them, but terrible for the entrepreneur, which is clearly not fair. You know? Yeah. And, and I think you've just given, you know, extra reason as to why we have a podcast like this, which is to really try and, you know, open the eyes of founders or wannabe founders that are thinking about starting a business, about how the, the different models to running your company, the different financing options you have, and that actually ventured isn't the right model for the majority of businesses. And then if it is the right model, pick your investors carefully because they've all got different incentives and different methods. And it's important that you really understand what their incentives are when they're handing over a few million pounds. What does that mean to them? And what are they looking as an outcome for that? Because there are no freebies in this world. And then just, just touching on the unicorn thing, obviously the name of the show is Riding Unicorns. But the reason it's called Riding Unicorns is because it's not an easy ride. <laughs> like the whole point is that you could get bucked off and hurt yourself very badly because this is a high stakes game, really. And it's, it's not 
we're, you know, we're not here talking about agency models or e-commerce brands. We're talking about venture-backed companies. And yeah, you know, the, the, the whole point is that it's an up and down journey and it's, it's a hard ride and it's not for everyone. And yeah, it's an interesting space and it's changed so much since we started the show as well, but, but it was deliberately branded that it's not uh, an easy ride. And maybe we should, re re you should consider rebranding it to not riding unicorns, but finding unicorns, question mark. Do they really exist anymore? Is there an obsession with finding unicorns? That's what we believe. We believe the whole industry is suffering from following the same business model of finding unicorns. That's why we're, when they're zigging, we're zagging. We're going to find zebras. They're black and white. You know, we're yeah. not looking for any X returns. We're looking for just decent returns of 2X, 4X, maybe up to 10X, you know. But we're not going to chase growth at all costs. We want to chase profitability. And we certainly are not going to compromise our ESG values because in the end, for us, it's not just about making money. It's about making a better society. And we hope the entrepreneurs that are listening today that might be looking for funding will think along the same lines as we do. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think it slightly comes down to who your LPs are. So in your case, you know, a lot of it's your own money and probably people that you know and trust money. And you are looking to back sort of what we might call sort of like real businesses with positive unit economics from, from day one. Whereas a lot of funds are backed by LPs where they might be backing five venture funds a year and the expectation is 10x or nothing. And so they're willing to take that risk. It's sort of the risk profile that's associated with the LPs' expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that they should be you know, investing stupidly, which does happen from time to time in the venture space, as we've covered already with WeWork. But it comes down to sort of what, the outcome expectations are of the LPs behind each fund, because that informs the strategy quite a lot. So let's talk about that. So let, you know, we're a small fund. So, you know, and that, let's start with that. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that are launching their first fund, quite you know, well-known guys that are they're saying, that, well, we're going to have a hundred million funds. Firstly, how can you have a hundred million fund if you've got no track record? Why would an investor go with you? Why would it believe? that you are going to be successful in your first fund and you're going to start 100 million. So we started with a 20 million pound fund because we've got to build up our own credibility within the market. So start small because small is beautiful. And then it's choose the sector you're going in. We decided to, to focus on ESG consumer brands. And if you take a typical VC fund, if there was one that was 20 million, let's say their typical profile would be that they would deploy, say, 100,000 in 50 to 100 businesses, say 10 million they'd deploy in the first round. And then they wouldn't join the board. And then they would maybe take a further 10 bit businesses that are doing well. And then they would put, say, a million pound in each. And that's your 20 million pound deployed. And they might join the board then. And then hope that four, the majority, four or five of them, will make a 20x return and that will give them their fundamental returns and return on investments and IR requirements that they, they require, okay? But as a result of that model, you're going to have 90% of your businesses fail. We don't believe in that. So rather than investing in 100 businesses, we're investing in, say, 25 businesses. We insist on taking a board seat because we want to guide the entrepreneur because I'm yet to meet a young entrepreneur or a first-time entrepreneur that hasn't 
that really has all the answers. You know, we're there to say, look, watch out for this, watch out for that. This is what you need to focus on in order to get your exit. And our approach is really to guide entrepreneurs and try to make sure they're successful, not have a 90% failure rate. I think we would be disappointed if we had a 50% failure rate. And we're certainly yeah. not looking, you know, we wouldn't say no to a business that wants to be a 20x return, but we wouldn't expect it to be a 20x return. We'd be looking for businesses that we believe overall in our portfolio that we can make our investors three times their money and, and make them a, a annual return of say 20% as a minimum. And if we don't do that, if we don't make them certainly 10%, we don't want to be paid or, we, you know, we don't deserve to be paid. We haven't done our job well. So. Uh, but Roger, know. again, you've, uh, you've highlighted the importance of understanding who that investor is, because when you take money from a fund, you're really taking money from the partner that sort of leads the deal and who they are and what their attitude is. So what you've demonstrated there is that when you invest, you have a lot to offer and you want to offer it and you want that's going to be your edge as an investor is the fact that you've done it and you've been there and done it. And, you know, in Europe, we've still got a much lower rate of people in venture with true operator experience. We've still got a lot of investment bankers and management consultants running venture funds. And hey, the, way they, the way they view it is basically a passive investment with a number that they've got to hit on the output in terms of returns to their LPs. And if they do that, that is success to them. What maybe you think, and, and I feel like I feel quite similarly, is that I love the game. I love the game of business and I want to be an active player on the pitch and I want to actually support companies. And so it's a slightly different mentality when it comes to investing sort of active v passive. And obviously in the public markets, we have active v passive, we have active fund managers, and then we have ETS, which are generally passive. In the venture world, we do as well, but they're not branded like that. But founders need to understand that there is a difference and um, they need to choose wisely. James, you're so right. You're 100% right there. So, and, and we, we've tried to get some stats on this and we, we've even talked, I mean, a lot of my guys are ex, well, they're all ex-London Business School. We've even asked there and, and in America, the majority of VC funds are run by entrepreneurs to so take the John Dawes of this world who have been incredibly successful or take the Mark Cubans of this world. Whereas in Europe and the UK, it's by far the majority, something like 90 to 95%, if not 99% of VC funds seem to be run by financiers. Now, financiers are, are great at raising money and they're great at getting a great deal for themselves and they get a great at getting a great exit for themselves. Notice I'm not using the word themselves, you know, but it, they don't add any operational value. And trust me, they don't. I've had so many PEs and VCs that talked a great game about what they're going to do, add to their business, but it didn't really add a lot. They did one thing, which is really focus our attention on the exit. And yes, you've got to be really careful. I mean, there is VC. I mean, I heard a recent story of a VC and it was going to fund the a down round. So for those of you listeners that don't know what a down round is, it's basically where your money's going to run out, go back to existing investor, usually at a much lower valuation, usually, you know, whatever figure. And they finance a down round, which is usually very advantageous to themselves. But in the, in the case of this funder, it not only financed a down round, it didn't want to 
And what it did, it was it introduced a clause, which was effectively liquidity preference shares. So for those that, and it said, we want a three times liquidity preference shares. And for your listeners, what does that mean? It said, we want three times our money out that we're putting in now before any distribution of further funds to the investors. And by the way, we also want our money out as an investor as well. So what happens? That stops any other institutional investor coming in because yeah. they're suddenly going, God, they've got 3x their money. So you can't ever get a buyer coming in yeah. you know, or suddenly finance. It, it creates a situation that the entrepreneur is virtually working for, for nothing. And these are, these are some of the practices that really worry me about the VC world. So we, we, I'm not blowing smoke up or, or, or an ass, you know. I'm, I'm basically, we've boxed part. We've not only got to invest in ESG businesses, but we've got to act as an ESG business. We've got to have strong values. And our strong values is that we're going to have an open term sheet, transparent term sheets. We're going to treat everyone the same. You know, we're not going to take advantage of people. We're going to be fair because it can't be, the odds can't be loaded in our favor as a VC. With VCs, there's got to be venture. There's got to be risk element of it. It can't be just that the VC never has any like risk in it or private equity. I'll tell you another story of a private equity firm, you know, is fundamentally what private equity will always want to do is increase it's IRR, want to re increase its return of investment. And do you know how they do that? They do that by loading up the deal with as much debt as they can. Because let's say they're investing in a company 10 million and they only put in a million. They look to raise 9 million in debt because it looks fantastic on their IRR. Because let's say that business then goes on to sell for 20 million. Well, actually, they've only invested a million. And they're now quoting effectively a 10x return on their million. The 10 million was paid back on an or 11x return. The 9 million that they raised was paid back to the funders. And that these 11 million has paid back to, to them or the shareholder. So effectively, they manipulate the numbers. And this is what you've got to be careful about. Yeah, it's another um, great example of founder beware. And yeah, really... Try and have people around you who can pick through some of these offers and, and understand what you're going to do. Founder beware. If you haven't got any money, you're going to get nowhere. You know, 100% of nothing is nothing. Yeah. Well, that's why, that's why these tactics exist because they can sometimes prey on that need. So Roger, I just want to move on slightly. You know, since stepping down as CEO of, of Box Park and launching Box Fund, you've become quite a bit strong voice on LinkedIn. And I just yeah. want... Uh, understand why are you investing in your personal brand we see it a lot more now people take their personal brand with them wherever they go so it's like a long-term investment but yeah. you with someone who's been successful what is your motivation right now for for creating content and getting people to listen to what you've got to say i mean first and foremost i don't really look at it as investing in my personal brand because that almost gives the impression I'm doing it for my own self-gain. It's actually complete reverse. Look, I'm in a really fortunate, fortunate position. You know, for 35 years, I grew up in a fantastic entrepreneurial environment in Britain. 
in which we are part of the largest single market in the world, the European Union. And I thrived under that system. And now that I've made enough money and I don't really need to work anymore, you know, I'm driven. My purpose is, is twofold. Firstly, I want to give back to entrepreneurs. Why? I enjoy it. I'm doing this today for free. Why do I need to do it today? I enjoy it. I want entrepreneurs. I want to help them. I want to educate them because it changed my life. And that was really important. The next thing that I also want to do is I want to create a better world. So I'm going to use my voice now. You get so many people that are in great positions of to make change, but they choose to do nothing. Nothing. Shame on them. Actually, we've got responsibility to give something back. Let's be inspired by the Bill Gates of this world. Let's be inspired by the Warren Buffetts of this world. Let's be inspired by people that dare to give something back. And that's what I feel. I feel it's by moral responsibility to give something back to this society. And at a time in which I think we've got probably the worst government I've ever witnessed, a corrupt government in which all they do is they're only worried about populism. They're only worried about their self-interest. I'm sickened by it. I'm sickened by it. I'm sickened by what I see. And I want entrepreneurs and I want business leaders to stand up for what's right and stop being worried about your career or how your it's going to affect your career. I don't give a shit. I really don't. I'm going to do the right thing. And you know what? If that means I don't attract people who are only interested in self-interest, and by the way, you know, this, I'm going to, you know, I'll be frank with you. I don't think, that. can I say this? No, I wasn't for it. I wouldn't say it. You, you know, and take it out in the other if you fuck with it. No, I want to invest in people that I believe I like myself, have the same values. Okay. Am I more likely to invest in somebody that is anti Brexit and pro Remain? Yes, I am. Why? Because I believe they're a lover. I believe that they want to give back to the world rather than blame people for everything that's gone wrong in life and put the blame on them. My mother was Irish. My dad was Malaysia. I was born in Britain. I've employed hundreds of people. And then suddenly people are saying to me that my mum came to Britain. Now you wouldn't get in the country. You know, no disrespect, but fuck you. How disrespectful is that? Mm. You know, I'm as British as the next person. And yeah, it upsets me. So now I'm going to stand up for what I believe is right. And I'm disappointed. I've given up on the Conservatives, but I've never really voted Conservative, but I'm also disappointed by the Labour Party. If Keir, you ever listen to this, you know, I met you many a time, you wanted me to support you, but you know what? Where are you when we need you to stand up against Brexit? When are you, where are you holding the government to account? No, you're just worried about your votes. You become like them. What we need is people of integrity, people that are willing to stand up for something and stand up for this country being a great country because we are a great country and stop being involved with populism and just literally trying it just makes me disgusted. 100%. Uh, well, Roger, I just want to say 
firstly, it's great to myth bust that why people do try and create content. And, you know, as a, you know, it's called personal branding now, but we can hear from your passion that it's not about clicks or views or gaining followers because actually you're happy to forego all of that as long as you're presenting an authentic representation of what you think is right. Did you think it changed? Oh, you were raising money. And I'm saying, look, no. <laughs> no, I think it probably doesn't help you raise. Doesn't help one. But it, it may do in the right situation where, the, so again, so it's called personal branding, but in this case, you're not doing it for clicks and followers and whatever. You're doing it because you want to represent your authentic self. But actually, the best brands in the world are the ones that stand for something and they have to have as many haters as they have lovers because that's actually what a brand is. If you become vanilla and watered down like these two major parties seem to be doing constantly to the point where they're completely useless and you know kind of look like the same and a crap in equal measure then there's nothing to be gained whereas actually taking a position and taking the right position that you really believe in and you can back up and is authentic to yourself is far better and i think you know linking politics and linkedin branding or personal branding is kind of interesting because there's a lot of politicians could take from people that are being successful on LinkedIn. And actually the people who are being most successful on LinkedIn are the ones that are maybe considered polarizing, but are actually authentic and standing up for what they believe in, because that's the only way they can be consistent in creating content is it becomes so easy because it's so, it seems so obvious. I think from following you for a while, seeing the content you create, I, I see you in that camp for sure. It, it's also, you know, in a, in a way, I'm, it's, I'm always filtering out the people I don't want to work with. I really am. I'm sort of saying that, look, I think Einstein once famously said, he was asked, what's the most important lesson you learned in life? And you know, he said, you've got to decide whether you live in a hostile or friendly world. You've got to decide whether you're a lover or a hater. You've got to decide whether you're a giver or a taker. Well, you know what? I'm 57. I'm still here standing and I'm a lover. I love people. I want to give something back. I want a better world. As the Ephibic Oath once famously said, I want to leave this world a better world than I found it. And that's what motivates me in everything I do. If people are naive enough or twisted enough to think that I'm motivated by just money, they don't understand me. And I don't think they should ever work with anyone that's like that. I'm more motivated. I've got more money than I need. That's not what motivates me. I'm motivated by creating a better world and proving that ESG investments can really be profitable. And I'm, I'm committed to that. But listen, on that note, I'm going to leave you. I have a, another call that's been waiting. I would like to say, James, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think we're very aligned in our viewpoints and I'd love to work with you in the future in some capacity. Well, Roger, I completely second that and I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for your time. We haven't got through all of our questions, but that's because there's so much to talk about with the successful career you've had and then now what you're doing and the, the messaging that you're putting out is so strong. And so, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and uh, 
yeah, we look forward to, to getting people's response to this episode because it's definitely been a really interesting one. Brilliant, James. All the best here. Chat soon. Take care. Cheers. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. We'll see you on the next episode.